The scripture reading this afternoon is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and we'll read together the verses 9 through 17. After this, I, that is John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So far the scripture reading. We now turn to Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 536 of your book of praise. <clears throat> what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life, immediately be taken up to Christ, my head, but also this, my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall, after this life, possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. <clears throat> Following the ministry of the word, let's sing in response hymn 69, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when someone dies, this is often referred to as a person having 
passed away. Is this a way of whitewashing the reality of what has happened? No, it isn't. If you would see the body that is left, you would realize that something vital has gone. It's like looking at an empty shell or an empty cocoon. The life that was once there, the person connected to that body, is gone. And where did the life that was in that body go? Where is the soul? Is it gone forever? Many of us have stood at a grave and seen a coffin descend. And while that happens, the Apostles' Creed is often recited or sung. Standing at a gravesite, we confess that we believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We are affirming our faith that life doesn't end when we close our eyes and breathe for the last time. Death has come into the world because of sin. Think of God's words to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Nevertheless, the same God who said this also spoke through the Apostle Paul comparing the burial of a body to sowing seed. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 42 to 44, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And Paul contrasts the first man, Adam, with the last Adam, namely Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He then assures us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The perspective is so beautiful that you might almost think it's too good to be true. It's beyond our ability to imagine everything this involves. Lord's Day 22 of the Catechism points this out when it speaks of perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. So we come to the theme for this afternoon. Salvation is amazing in its scope. We'll focus on two points. It includes body and soul.
And secondly, it is eternal and perfect. Salvation is amazing in its scope. It includes body and soul. It is eternal and perfect. Beloved, modern science can tell us a lot, but it has its limitations. It makes observations, formulates tentative explanations called hypotheses, and tests them by experiments. If the experiments work out as predicted, this gives reason to suppose that the hypothesis could be valid. And by repeatable experiments, scientists arrive at conclusions, and the process is called the scientific method. We can't apply this scientific method to what the Bible says about the resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not repeatable and therefore can't be tested by experiments. This does not, however, mean that the claims of Scripture can simply be dismissed as articles of faith instead of statements of fact. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul refers to the testimony of the Apostles, of Peter, of a group of more than 500 believers to whom Jesus appeared at one time, many of whom were still alive. He also mentions another appearance to James and all the apostles and adds to this his personal testimony. What Paul is getting at is that there is no reason to doubt these accounts of the resurrection. The apostle Paul put it very bluntly in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 17 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is foundational for our belief that death does not have the final word. Our Savior has overcome the power of sin and death, arising triumphant from the grave. He testifies, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The certainty of our hope is therefore directly connected to Jesus Christ. He assures us that life does not end when our soul leaves our body. Life continues, and even our bodies will one day arise from the dead. Greek philosophers theorized that the soul was immortal, but they looked down on the body. To them, the body was not more than a prison from which the soul gets released at death. And some Christian theologians in the history of the church also embraced this idea of an immortal soul in the prison of a body. But this is not what Scripture teaches. We have no power of life in us independent from God. Our life comes from Him and depends on Him from moment to moment. 
And this applies to our body and our soul. Our body is not a prison of our soul. It's not something inferior that we leave behind forever at death. Scripture teaches us that God is the creator of our body and our soul. Both are precious in his sight. And how do we know this? Well, Christ came into this world not just to save our souls. He gave his life to save our bodies from the power of death and the grave. And how can we know for sure that our bodies will arise from the dead? Listen to the testimony of the Bible. Christ died, but his body that was taken from the cross as a corpse came to life again. He arose and left the grave behind. Never forget that the tomb was empty. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is a visible guarantee that our bodies will not remain in the grave. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he said to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He wanted his disciples to be absolutely sure that his body was alive again. It was a changed body, no longer mortal, but there was continuity with the past. It was recognizable because his crucifixion left scars on his hands and his feet. These were reminders of his perfect sacrifice on the cross. When the Apostle Paul was in Athens, he proclaimed the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was something new to the Greeks. It contradicted what some of their philosophers said. And that's why when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They mocked him because the proclamation of the resurrection of the body was quite different from what they were used to hearing. Scripture distinguishes between a person's body and soul, but not in the same way as the Greek philosophers did. Think of the warning of our Savior in Matthew 10, verse 28, where he encouraged his disciples to be bold in proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is making it clear that body and soul are not the same. People can kill somebody's body, but they can't kill that person's soul. God, however, can destroy both body and soul in the sense that he can condemn both to hell. And here the word destroy doesn't mean that the soul and body will cease to exist. We need to compare scripture with scripture to get the full meaning. Various passages make it clear that the bodies of wicked people will be resurrected. Then they will suffer the full consequences of their sins. They will be condemned to everlasting punishment. And from other scripture passages, we can conclude that this means everlasting suffering. 
And what happens when a believer dies? Lord's Day 22 teaches us to confess, My soul after this life shall immediately be taken up to Christ my head. But also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Christ arose from the dead and we too will arise. And this is not a philosophical conviction, but the clear teaching of Scripture. Meanwhile, when we die, we may trust that our souls will be immediately taken up to be with Christ. After all, the Bible gives us reason to speak in this way. Think of how the Apostle Paul expresses his longing to be with the Lord in Philippians 1, the verses 23 to 24. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Clearly, Paul is distinguishing between his soul and his body. After all, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And the word depart refers to dying leaving the body behind. But pay attention to the fact that for him dying means going to be with Christ. He calls that far better than remaining in the flesh. And why should Paul long to depart, which means to die, if this doesn't mean he would immediately be taken up to be with Christ? There would be no reason to to long to die if he would not be aware of being with Christ until the day of his resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't use the word soul in Philippians 1, but this is clearly what he means. He's not talking about some vague life force. We hear him expressing his longing to go and be with Christ personally. There's no suggestion here whatsoever of an intermediate state in which he would not be fully conscious of being with Christ. He is writing about going to be with Christ at the moment of death. If the idea of a soul sleep or something like it were the case, there would be nothing gained by dying earlier instead of later. As long as he is still in the flesh, he can have fellowship with Christ. However, he also makes it clear that death is gain and not loss for him. Why? Because it immediately means even closer fellowship with Christ. From a personal perspective, being with Christ sooner rather than later is far better. A believer who dies no longer deals with the troubles of this life. And we may comfort each other with this truth in the face of death. And does that mean we should hasten the day of our death? No. Like Paul, we should leave it up to God to determine when we will leave this life. Paul knew that he could still do much for the benefit of the churches. So he was content to continue to work to build them up in the faith. 
And Paul describes the underlying purpose of his life as a matter of honoring Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. Is that your purpose in life? To honor Christ as long as you live? If it is, you will also look forward to being with him when you die. Where else would you want to be? Meanwhile, as long as we live, let's occupy ourselves with serving our God here on earth. And if you have trouble seeing how to do this, pray about it. Jesus Christ guarantees eternal life to all those who believe in him. When you die, you will therefore go to be with him. Death won't interrupt your fellowship with him. That's how strong the bond is between our Savior and us. And this bond affects not only our soul, of course, but also our body. That's why we confess the resurrection of the body. It's an important confession. Your body might not be as nice as you would like it to be. It can get sick. Age can take its toll, too. But Scripture doesn't teach you to look down on your body. God gave it to you, and as his gift to you, it is valuable in his eyes. And your body is also valuable in the eyes of Jesus, who came to redeem both your body and soul from the effects of sin and death. To accomplish that, he suffered under God's wrath in his body and soul during his whole life, but especially on the cross. And take comfort from that, brothers and sisters. When you die, the grave won't be the final resting place of your body. It will be resurrected and glorified. Our sinful and therefore very limited minds can't understand how this t- can take place. But Scripture teaches, a, teaches us about this very clearly. Look in faith to Jesus Christ. His resurrection and subsequent glory guarantee that there is an eternal future for us because he is our head. Salvation is amazing in its scope. It includes body and soul. It is eternal and perfect. This is our second point. After speaking about the resurrection of the body, the Apostles' Creed concludes with an article about the life everlasting. And the order of these articles might leave you with the impression that we're talking about something in the future after the resurrection of the body. But that's not the point here. Neither Scripture nor the Catechism speak of it in this way. Everlasting or eternal life begins now, in this life. Just think of Jesus' words in John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life. He doesn't say you will eventually have it but that you have it now if you believe in him. And what then is eternal life? 
In his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, Jesus described it like this. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Perhaps you expected a different description of eternal life. Something like, eternal life is life without end. But here we see that Christ does not speak in the first place about how long eternal life lasts. He talks about what kind of life it is. What kind of life is it, actually? It's life that consists of knowing God who has revealed his love in Jesus Christ. It also involves knowing Jesus Christ. And knowing God means more than just knowing he exists. Lots of people say they believe in the existence of God, but it doesn't mean much to them. It doesn't really affect their lives. According to the Bible, knowing God means believing in him, loving him, living in fellowship with him through Jesus Christ. It involves listening to his word and responding in prayer. If you do that, you may be sure that you have eternal life. This is life in fellowship with God. It begins in this life and will be experienced fully in eternal glory. Trust that God will continue to take care of you. Your life is safe in God's hands. Fellowship with him will go on beyond the life we have now. It's eternal. If you don't live in God's fellowship now, you don't really know God. And this is a serious matter, for then you don't have eternal life. You are still under the wrath of God. Just being a church member is not enough to be saved. It's possible for church members to be spiritually dead and on their way to hell. And so it's very important for us to be clear on this point. Examine yourself. Are you really living in fellowship with God? Do you love him? Is his word a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? Do you pray to him? Do you know and trust in Jesus Christ, his son, for the forgiveness of all your sins? Do you ask your Savior to work in your life through the Holy Spirit? If you can say yes to these questions, don't doubt whether or not you will go to heaven. Eternal life is yours already. You have reason to rejoice. Death can't separate you from God. He will preserve you and receive you into heavenly glory. When you take time to reflect on that, you will be thankful. It will have a positive impact on your life. Learn to show thankfulness to God for his grace. But what about our sins? They can certainly interfere with experiencing the joy of faith. 
They can undermine our assurance of faith. And when this happens, we need to take refuge in Jesus Christ as our Savior. God freely grants forgiveness to all those who humble themselves before him with repentant hearts and ask him for this gift. Think of Psalm 86, verses 4 to 5. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Salvation comes from God, not from ourselves. It's not based on our works, but on his grace. Think of the scripture passage we read together. Focus on Revelation 7 verse 10. What is the song of the church in glory? It's not a song about human faithfulness. What is there that anyone could boast about before God? We will be singing about his grace. What are the words of the song that John heard? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We can't save ourselves. Only God can do that. And he does that through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's the ground for our hope and the source of our joy. Look at Revelation 7, verse 14. John has seen a great multitude of people wearing white robes. Who are they? They have come out of the great tribulation. And the word tribulation testifies to suffering here on earth in contrast with heavenly peace and glory. Speaking of the great tribulation may refer to the period of intense suffering before the return of Jesus in glory, but it can also be taken in a more general sense. And then it would mean all of the tribulations of God's people throughout time. In any case, these people are rejoicing in the salvation given to them. Why are their robes white? An elder gives John the explanation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sin makes us all dirty. It makes each one of us unclean before God. Our best works are like filthy rags in his sight. How can we ever be clean? Only through the blood of the Lamb. The white robes symbolize the righteousness and holiness that we receive through faith in him. The salvation God gives is perfect. It will be a source of unending and perfect joy. One day we will be with God through Jesus Christ, forever safe from harm and evil. The Apostle John explains, He who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. You can find those words in Revelation 7 verse 15. And the word for shelter, the verb for shelter can also be used for putting up a tent. And the tent is a symbol of shade from the hot sun. The owner of that tent offers his hospitality, food and drink. And this becomes a picture of blessings for us from God through Jesus Christ. And God's attention for his people is very personal. Look at how it is described in Revelation 7, the verses 16 to 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. That means that our bodies will lack nothing. The description continues. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. In other words, God will also fulfill the needs of our bodies and souls. With Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as our shepherd, we will be eternally safe. John writes, And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Just think about that. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We shed a lot of tears because of the loss of loved ones. The process of grieving isn't easy. Although there is comfort, the sense of loss can continue to be painful. As the months and years go by, the sharpness of that pain will eventually grow less. But memories can arise at unexpected moments and again bring tears to our eyes. The day will come when God will wipe away every tear. Whatever memories there may be, the pain will be gone. There will be no more mental anguish, no distress, no fear, No sadness anymore. There will only be unimaginable blessedness. Look forward to that. And by telling us this, God is already giving us reason to praise him now. What's coming is eternal and perfect. He will give us reason to praise him forever. Amen.